Hi, everybody. Today I'm speaking with Veda. Veda has decided that they're not going to talk to their family about certain aspects of their personal life, like their gender identity and being queer. Veda's family is South Asian, and based on earlier attempts at conversations around their sexuality, Veda is now very clear on where they want this boundary to stand. Let's get into it. My name is Veda. I currently live in Brooklyn, New York. I'm from a small town in northern central Florida called Ocala. And yeah, I call my parents mom and dad. I had put in my pronouns in my email signature, as uh, I encourage anyone who's hearing this to do. And it was she, they at the time. I had been actively going in and deleting the they and changing it to her, specifically when I emailed my mom. But one time I slipped up. And this was last summer, too, when I was having a full meltdown, like a full pandemic meltdown, you know. But anyway, she was like, wait, what is it? Why does it say? What does this mean? And I was like, oh, it's just pronouns. Like, I just thought, like, she's not going to dig deeper. She's probably really doesn't want to know. So I was like, oh, that's just pronouns. Everybody just puts their pronouns on things like you should, too. I said something like that. I didn't think, like, to explain the they aspect. I thought she would just be like, oh, that's just some language thing that I don't. That's just some lingo but no, then she was like, oh, you you have your pronouns like that? Why do you do all of that? Like, I hope you don't have that on your like resume, right? When you apply for jobs, people are going to see that. And I was like, that's a great idea. And then I put it on my resume. That's all I said. I didn't like, you know, I just was just like, I, I'm making an active decision not to get, not to engage, not even to defend myself. I haven't found it in me to talk to my own family about my gender, for example. And this is because I learned a very valuable lesson when I came out to my parents as queer, sexuality-wise. I learned that there's no need to romanticize an experience like that. Like, there's no need to romanticize a milestone like coming out. It can be deeply traumatic for people who aren't white or people who are white. It can be horrifying <laughs> actually, even if you manage to recover from it and heal and you all go to therapy or whatever, there's still going to be those memories of sharing something that maybe you didn't even really want to share with your parents because some of us don't talk to our parents about our sexuality, period, no matter what it is. Some of us don't talk to our parents about our dating life at all until we're ready to get married. That's just not expected and it's not ever been promoted in our households. So I do think that it was an inorganic way that I came out to my parents properly. I had been like voicing feelings to my mom since I was a little kid, actually. But she, you know, easily dismissed them. And I don't even really hold that against her. For her, it was like, oh, you sound so scared of this. And this is probably something you learned about. But I really doubt that you actually relate to this identity. But it was dismissive yeah so coming out to my parents about me not f being cis it's just something I do not even see on the horizon that's because I don't think I want to have that talk with them I don't want to take on that emotional labor and I think that that's my prerogative it's it's like far more beautiful and poetic to to 
be completely open with your family and be able to this these were western ideals though basically i thought that there would be a happy ending that i'm supposed to pursue with my gender oh my god i would have to like decolonize their minds and do i have it in me to do that do i have it in in me to teach two cis parents what being non-binary is no hell no i have time for other things not this what came from me coming out to my parents in the first place it did alter my relationship with them permanently and i'm glad for the clarity it provided me because it also brought me a lot closer to my sister who was a huge pillar of support for me it also woke her up to something that i had been going through my entire childhood frankly between me and my parents the fights that would go on at home the fights were just brutal that memory that feeling i feel it physically when i think back on it it's like a visceral like like crying myself to sleep the clarity it brought us both was that that our parents are human deeply flawed just like every one of us they're people <laughs> and they hurt me I mean, they're also my heroes. They're like remarkable people. And my love for them, it's just, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to verbalize that. I am a very family-oriented person. It brings me a lot of joy to be around my family. If their input is somehow harmful to my values that I feel like I now have a more concrete understanding of, then I will have to take breaks, like breaks from visiting, breaks from talking. I don't see that happening though because my parents have changed also since I came out. They've made a, an active choice to be uh figures of fun and less authority in my life now. Actually just be tender. Now we just like play and drink and watch things and don't talk about anything serious and I think a little bit of that is because like they're like let's just not get into anything political. Keep it light. Keep it light all the time. That'll be the trajectory of our relationship from here on out. Hi, Juleika here to introduce you to About a Girl, a scripted series about women who played crucial roles in music history, but whose fascinating personal stories have been eclipsed by the legends of their famous romantic partners, like Marianne Faithful and Mick Jagger, Faith Evans and Notorious B.I.G., Betty and Miles Davis. As a narrative anthology, About a Girl sheds light on the women, many of them artists themselves, without whom pop music might sound very different. Listen to About a Girl anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hi, everybody. I'm Julie Calantigua, the creator and executive producer of How to Talk to High Achievers About Anything. And I'd like to invite you to be a guest on the show. Every episode, we talk to black and brown folks striving to do big things and looking for ways to level up. Licensed psychotherapist Devon Lewis offers feedback about aspirational challenges we all face. Things like imposter syndrome, perfectionism, and especially how we define success. We'd love to hear about your triumphs and where you still trip up sometimes. Send our producer Virginia an email so she can get your story on the show. She's at virginia at lwcstudios.com. What's up, everybody? I'm Steve R. Lewis, a licensed psychotherapist and host of How to Talk to High Achievers About Anything. I'm excited to share big news. How to Talk to High Achievers About Anything is back. This time, I'll be joined by a very special person, someone whose name you know very well. Hi, everybody. I'm Julie Calantigua, founder of LWC Studios. 
Welcome, Jaleika. I'm so excited. And by the way, I'll be taking notes. So many notes. As always, on the show, we get to hear stories from Black and brown folks who are out there doing great and amazing things. Then I do my thing of offering some feedback and strategies to help us navigate personal and professional challenges. Together, we'll figure out how to achieve on our own terms. Subscribe to or follow How to Talk to High Achievers about anything everywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. On Twitter and Instagram, you can follow the show at Talk to Achievers. I really admire the clarity that Veda has about how they want to manage their relationship with their family. I also really respect the resolve to prioritize their needs and to put themselves first in this situation. That's hard to do. And of course, it made me think about so many other conversations I've had with guests who are trying to also set these types of emotional boundaries. And it got me thinking, how do we move forward in our relationships when we decide there are conversations we're simply not open to having? To help us figure it out, I called in an expert. My name is Sri Sinha. I hold a Master's of Arts in Counseling Psychology, and I'm currently a doctoral candidate at the University of Denver. I work in sexuality, relationships, and multicultural counseling. You heard Veda's story. What did you hear as you listened? The story was deeply personal in the sense of being able to really identify for yourself what you want to share and whom you want to share it with. And I loved that so much. It was refreshing, honestly, to see someone who is really able to carve out for themselves what it is that they are ready to share and when they want to share it, rather than feeling like sharing some piece of your identity is a requirement, as if you have to put it out there for everyone all the time. Let's talk about that a little bit, because that is definitely the general sense I get from talking to people who have to make a decision about what to share, when to share it, whom to share it. In your work, what do you find are some of the pressures that people put on themselves and allow others to put on them around this topic? Oh my gosh, there's so much pressure that comes from it. And we talk about it both in terms of the external pieces, right? So what's the pressure that's coming in from society, from parents, from work, right? Loved ones, whatever that might be. And then all of the pieces that are internalized as well, right? What are the things that we tell ourselves about, I'm not gay until I come out, right? Or I'm not really officially non-binary until I use they pronouns. You could be non-binary and still use she pronouns, right? You could still use he pronouns, you could use whatever. But it comes back to these pieces of what we tell ourselves of what something quote unquote should look like. And when you're comparing yourself to that image and you're never going to fulfill that, right? That's not going to be your true sense of yourself. So how do you help someone overcome that? Oof, so fun. Well, some of the things that I love that Veda was talking about in this clip was really being able to make it personal, right? Like we said, there's no need to romanticize a milestone like coming out. And to really be able to come to those decisions yourselves, I mean, I think that's some of that beautiful long work of therapy 
and also the work that we do in our organization at SESMA in terms of really trying to dive deep and help folks unpack, unpeel, really get in there into some of those layers to try to understand, okay, which of these are things that are more, you know, I learned growing up in this white supremacist country and culture. These are things that I learned growing up in cis-sexist and heterosexist cultures versus these are the things that I find as my own authentic values, right? And what are the ways that I want to live that are going to be congruent to that? These are the things that I love that I got from mommy and papi or I got from mom and baba. And these are the things that don't quite fit for me. So there's that part of you choosing, right? But then there's the part of someone like Veda being still part of a family that they love, that they are so dedicated to, and having to navigate the dynamics of choosing how to be, and then also having expectations, cultural, familial expectations that are put upon them. Tell me about ways that people can navigate that. One of the things that I really loved was hearing the way that they're able to take on the parts that they care about, feeling so close to their family and being like, okay, let's watch movies together. Let's, you know, do the music and the song and the dance and food and all those things about all our cultures that we love. (laughs) But I'm going to leave the baggage at the door and kind of a mutual decision, it seemed. What did really make me sad about hearing that was even though I so respect Veda setting these boundaries really, right, for themselves, but it did make me a little bit sad to hear about them leaving some parts of themselves behind and feeling like they can't fully engage, right? And I think that is the part where it, the strategies in terms of being able to integrate those often comes from the fact that sometimes we really don't give our parents enough credit I feel like a lot of times even to leave that culture of origin and come here, I mean, the guts and how innovative and how courageous you have to be to even be that kind of person, you're probably, you know, not totally fitting in, in your culture of origin if you are choosing to emigrate. And so I think sometimes when it comes to trying to approach these conversations, trying to integrate, sometimes it really comes down to, okay, what are the cultural examples that I can think of that might fit for you to understand it if they ever choose to go down that route? And so in a South Asian cultural context, some of the things that I'm thinking of, well, it sounds like they watch a lot of movies together. So who are celebrities? What are different movies, right? So starting to use some of those examples that are going to feel more relevant And, and this part really gets me, what Veda was talking about of like, if I have to go into this, I would have to decolonize their minds. That is, of course, so insanely much to take on, right? That's a project and that's not Veda's job. But that means that us collectively really uncovering our roots, because our roots are actually not based on a gender binary, are not actually necessarily cis-sexist. I mean, there's definitely instances of 
prejudice and discrimination against their gender people, against, for example, hijra culture in South Asian contexts. But really being able to point back, for example, in mythology, in Muslim as well as Hindu mythology, so many stories that exist of fluidity in gender and embracing and the power of that, really seeing people who define gender norms or gender roles as powerful, divine beings. You know, it's like all of these things that we have taken as truth, that's not necessarily the truths of our cultures or our communities. And that's not necessarily our truths. So let's stay with that, because I think that sometimes in the myth of the immigrant that we create, we tend to drastically cut off millennia of history that formed and informs who we are. But let's let's take sort of like a really practical approach because a lot of our immigrant parents literally don't have the words <laughs> with which to comprehend, right? And even a pronoun change can be very confusing to them. So tell me about how a person who is willing to engage in these conversations with their parents up to a certain extent, how can they approach the education portion of it in a way that is scaffolded, you know, based on where their parents are. This is so crucial uh, to really be able to ascertain the level that someone is coming in at, right? And honestly, kind of dial it back to thinking about what is it that I'm trying to communicate? Who is my audience? And what is going to be the most effective tools to use in this situation? for me to be able to communicate my objective. So really like, I mean, taking it back to what did we like persuasive essays in fifth grade. In a conversation, for example, with your parents, you know them pretty well. They might surprise us, but you also probably know like, is it gonna be more the ethos, the pathos, the logos that works for me? Is it gonna be feeling compelled about me personally in some way? Is sharing a book or a movie or an article gonna work best, right? is me feeding them the information right? Or are they more a self-learner and I can give them some websites? Or are they like, I don't want to do that stuff. Like, just tell me in your own words what this means. And that piece you said on scaffolding too, really wanting to build that over time, right? Reassessing. And I mean, I've had this conversation with my own mother, for example. I came out to her when I was in ninth grade. They kind of just laughed at me like, okay, that's nice. We think you don't really know what you're talking about. And it's been really incredible, honestly, to watch my mom over like 15 years, right? Her understanding for both of my parents, really, their understandings have changed. The world has changed. So having those conversations with my mom now is very different, (laughs) quite honestly. And that's the piece of scaffolding of sometimes she surprises me, really. She gets stuff more than I thought she would. You know, she's, she's, she's learned too. We're all learning and growing kind of at the same time. And though it's still sometimes obviously invalidating or frustrating or just to protect myself, I'm going to choose to not share parts. Sometimes we underestimate how much our parents can take. My last question is, um, please share some resources, including your podcast, where people can follow up, learn more, hear more stories from folks about how they've handled these situations. Please. There are 
two different, actually, interactive world maps that I personally love to use. I use this when I teach. One is focused just on gender, and that's a PBS world map. And then there's another one that kind of gives examples of both sexuality and gender, of diverse sexualities and genders from around the world, and really bookmarks it back to when when we have evidence of any type of non-heterosexual or non-cisgender experience. And it literally goes back to, I think the earliest one on there is 13th century BCE. And so that's part of the decolonizing your mind. And the other thing that I would recommend is absolutely seeking community. And that's what we at SESMA are here for. You know, we work in the areas of mental health, sexual health, and sexuality, but all issues relating to really any of these kind of hyphenated identities, right? Like that immigrant kid experience. So our website is www.sasmha.org. Um, we also, you know, can find us on social at South Asian SMH and on our own podcast called The Brown Taboo Project. You've been such a joy to speak with. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. I'm so excited and I'm so grateful to be a part of this journey. All right, let's recap what we learned from Sri. Identify your personal pressure points. Notice what's driving your decisions to engage or not engage in these difficult or taboo conversations. Consider whether these messages from society or from yourself fit with your values and how you want to live your life. Draw on cultural examples. Point to people and events your loved ones can relate to and use these as entry points into these conversations. Turn to contemporary culture and also to your family's ancestral roots that may have been hidden or forgotten. And remember, know your audience. Your parents are your audience, so use the communication tools that they tend to be most receptive to. Whether you are appealing to their emotions or their logic or citing credible sources, use what works best with them. In our episode notes, you'll find a list of resources recommended by Sri, including her organization, the South Asian Sexual and Mental Health Alliance. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. How to Talk to Mommy and Papi About Anything is an original production of Lantigua Williams & Co. Virginia Lora is the show's producer. Kojin Tashiro is our mixer. Manuela Bedoya is our social media editor. Cedric Wilson is our lead producer. Jen Chien is our executive editor. I'm the creator, Juleika Lantigua Williams. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Talk to Mommy Papi. Please follow us and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, Spotify, Good Pods, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Bye, everybody. Same place next week.